Hello, and welcome to the Human Instrumentality Podcast, your guided deep dive into the seminal animated series, Neon Genesis Evangelion. I'm Ian Corey. And I'm Joseph Schaefer. In this episode, we're going to talk about episodes 7 and 8 of Neon Genesis Evangelion, as well as the new characters and themes that these episodes introduce. We aren't going to spoil anything from the rest of the show, but we will point out foreshadowing where it's relevant. But for now, Human Instrumentality Podcast, Unit 4, launch! Episode 7, The Works of Man. Uh, Before I begin, by the way, I'm just going to do something that isn't very professional, but just let you know, I fucking hate this episode. Uh, Keep that in mind as you're listening to this. So, Episode 7, The Works of Man, opens with Gendo... Remember Gendo? On a call regarding the press wanting info about the angels and other cover-ups that Nerve may or may not be involved in. Some second plan is alluded to. And with that ominous foreshadowing, we have a hard cut to Shinji and Pen Pen eating breakfast. The two work in sort of perfect synchronization. And Misato walks in, barely dressed and sloppy. Shinji, being the mature responsible adult of the pair somehow gives her grief. We find out that Masato is going to go to Shinji's school for some sort of uh, career counseling session with his teachers, maybe school shit. Shinji goes to school uh, with the boys. And while he leaves, Misato calls some nerve agents to tail him. Later, a few hours into school, Misato shows up in her sports car, well-dressed, looking like a total lady boss, and the boys, looking out a window at her, totally perv on her. Shinji, leaning back, insists that living with Misato is a very different story from observing Misato in heels and a leather jacket walking into school like a politician or a movie star. We then flash back to episode two and the shot of unit one with no mask. And Shinji remarks that the entry plug smells like blood. At Nerve, on an elevator, Shinji keeps quiet while Ritsuko, Misato, and the command crew hint at a Unit 2 Ava and obliquely techno-babble about the Avas, whine about the budget of Nerve, and uh, intimate that Gendo is traveling for some sort of meeting. We then cut to Gendo on a plane. At this point, we're about a fifth of the way through the episode and nothing has really happened, you may notice. Some sort of nameless official, maybe the, the Russians? sits down next to him and tells him that every nation in the world except the U.S. has approved the budget for Ava Unit 6 and that the budget constraints were based on the idea that the angels would never appear. Back at Nerve, Ritzko info dumps that the second impact that you may remember from previous episodes was not caused by a meteor impact, but by discovery of an angel, which precipitated a huge explosion. This talk visibly upsets Misato. Nerve and the Avas exist, Ritzko says, to prevent a potential third impact. Ritzko then hints at a different operation the next day. The next morning repeats almost exactly as the beginning of the episode, except Misato is extremely well-dressed, and unlike the sort of flashy girl boss outfit she had previously, is buttoned all the way down. It's clearly a different vibe. And she says she's going to old Tokyo for work that day. The next section of the episode starts with the title card, A Human Work. 
So Misato and Ritsuko arrive in old Tokyo for the unveiling of uh, some sort of unnamed achievement by Japan's private sector. It turns out to be a competitor mech to fight the angels not made by nerve. At a meeting, a question and answer session, uh, answering questions about uh, this new mech, Ritsuko questions the presenters about the viability of a giant robot that operates by remote control and, crucially, runs on nuclear power and therefore could explode. The advocate for the competitor robot makes sexist remarks to silent her and makes the following statement. Berserk weapons are like out-of-control women. There's not much you can do with them. This unfortunate remark manages to humiliate and silence both Ritsuko and Misato. Later in the locker room, Misato's having a total emotional meltdown about being spoken to like that, while Ritsuko goes cold and remarks that Nerve has some sort of intelligent leaks. The giant mech, it's called Jet Alone, powers up and, as you could easily predict goes berserk instantly. Misato demands the password for an emergency jet alone shutdown, and the bureaucrats that facilitate the jet alone mech deny her that. Undaunted, Misato calls Nerve, orders that Unit 1 be dispatched to Tokyo 2, which is old Tokyo, puts on a radiation hazmat suit, and says that she's going to shut jet alone down manually. We find out later that the emergency password for jet alone is HOPE. Unit 1 airdrops down onto the field that Jet Alone is uh, sauntering through, carrying Misato, and Shinji runs up to Jet Alone, deposits Misato onto it, and holds Jet Alone back. Inside the robot, Misato enters the password hope, and it fails. So Misato is forced to manually shove the control rods back into place. Misato comments that Jet Alone seems to, be have, uh, seems to have been sabotaged, and that it's miraculous... Last-minute shutdown seems pre-orchestrated. Back at Nerve, Ritsuko reports to Gendo that despite Captain Katsuragi's interference, everything went according to plan. So she and Gendo were the ones who sabotaged Jet Alone for Nerve's sake. In a third run-through of the breakfast sequence, Misato is back to her frumpy, boozy self. Shinji, on the way to school with the boys, continues to shit-talk Misato. And Kensuke turns to remark that his ability to see beyond her put-together front actually makes Shinji family to Misato. A classic sitcom ending. Episode 8. Asuka arrives in Japan. This episode begins with Gendo on the phone, in his office for once, again, saying that some sort of package will be delivered to Nerve. Hard cut to Shinji, Misato, and the boys, for some reason on a helicopter headed into the Pacific, where they intercept with a fleet of UN warships. On the flagship of this fleet, the Over the Rainbow, the Admiral's watching the Nerve helicraft land and remarks that he's upset that Nerve decided to bring an entry plug with them. Meanwhile, on the bow of the ship, ominously, a young girl with long red hair and pigtails in a sundress is watching everyone land. When the Nerve team lands, the boys are goofing off and then run straight into the girl who'd been ominously watching them just a moment ago. Misato identifies her instantly as the second children, Asuka Langley Soryu, from Germany. Instantly, Asuka's offended or slighted by Toji and slaps him and Shinji, who she perceives may be ogling her. She dismisses Shinji as a pilot outright seconds after meeting him. 
In a meeting with the admiral in charge of the UN fleet, Masato is informed that the UN will not allow Unit 2 to be activated on board. And he, the admiral denigrates nerves and rejects Masato's professional requests. Uh, interrupting this conversation is Ryoji Kaji, who uh, Masato immediately recognizes and is immediately flustered by the presence of. Meanwhile, in a quick shot underwater, the sixth angel approaches. While fraternizing, it becomes obvious that Kaji and Masato formally had a sexual relationship. This revelation frustrates Masato and Asuka, but endears Kaji to Shinji. Unlike Asuka, Kaji identifies Shinji's talent as a pilot, which frustrates Asuka even further. In her frustration, Asuka hijacks Shinji and shows him the illustrious Unit 2. At that point, the sixth angel, Gagiel, appears as a huge shark-like being and attacks the fleet, much to Asuka's delight. The fleet proves 100% unable to engage with the angel, so Asuka puts herself in a plug suit alongside Shinji and engages instead. Kaji calls Gendo and reports the angel attack. Gendo says that the possibility of an angel attack is exactly why he sent Unit 2, not vice versa, and in typical Gendo fashion, remarks that if Unit 2 fails, he should escape on his own. After a uh, slightly difficult start, because Unit 2 is set to German, not Japanese, Asuka launches Unit 2 on her own with Shinji next to her in the entry plug. Cue another great Evangelion fight scene with Unit 2 jumping from ship to ship and Gagiel leaping onto an aircraft carrier deck and biting Unit 2. Eventually, there's a sequence where they're uh, fishing with the angel underwater in the ruins of old Tokyo with Unit 2 still plugged in, acting like a hook in its jaws. Unfortunately, Unit 2 barely works underwater. It needs to be set up to work underwater for some reason uh, and becomes totally enmeshed in Gagiel's jaws. The two can't separate. So Kaji departs in a VTOL aircraft, abandoning Asuka and totally enraging Gagiel. We're meant to infer that this means the angel wanted Kaji the entire time. Hint, hint, this is important. On the Over the Rainbow, Masato hatches another plan to beat the angel. She wants to sink two battleships in front of Gagiel while Asuka in Unit 2 holds its jaws open and has both of the battleships fire their cannons into Gagiel's mouth where its core is located. Shinji joins Asuka in controlling Unit 2 and together they execute Misato's plan flawlessly, killing the angel outright. After the battle, Ritsuko remarks that together Shinji and Asuka broke the synchronization record. Back at Nerve HQ, Kaji delivers a package, the one alluded to earlier, to Gendo. It's a briefcase containing what looks like a human fetus that is slowly regenerating somehow. Gendo remarks that it is in fact the first human being, Adam, the first angel hinted at at the last episode. At school the next day, Shinji and the boys remark on how much they hated dealing with Asuka, only to discover that she's the newest member of their class. Wop, wop, wah. You may be sensing a hint of disdain in both of our voices at separate parts of that summary. Let's just be blunt. Jet, the Jet Alone episode, The Works of Man, does not have a lot going for it. It's one of the slowest, least consequential, least interesting episodes of the show. It's a serious misstep that the most... The most credit I can give is that maybe they were trying to do a slower episode after the 
very exciting battle sequence of the last two, but they ended up with a real clunker on their hands instead. And personally, I know that Asuka arrives is a, among certain segments of the Ava fandom is a fan favorite because Asuka is a very popular character in the show. But I think just as an episode of television, it shares a lot of the same problems that uh, the Jet Alone episode does. So this pairing for me, honestly, not my favorite stretch of the show by any means. You're not going to get any pushback from me on that. This is the low point of the series as a whole. Uh, and I think that would be true even if we hadn't just gone through one of the most exciting battle sequences in, in the whole series. Doubly frustrating is the fact that there's so much important lore and info in these episodes, not to mention introducing two major characters, that they're not skippable. If you tried watching this series without watching these two episodes... You're lost for the rest of it, which kind of sucks. Unlike Ian, I'm one of these people who loves Asuka. I love Asuka. I'm, I am that fanboy. I stand this mighty queen. I think she's fucking great. And I'm sure we're going to go into that later on. So because of that, and the fact that I kind of like the fight sequence, I give the first Asuka episode kind of a pass. But the the Jet Alone episode is unforfucking giveable. It's pretty bad. It does a lot of things wrong. That it, there's a lot of like unforced errors in this episode is the best way to put it. Like the action sequence of the Ava chasing down Jet Alone should be on some level kind of exciting, but it's set up in like the dumbest way. There's just all of this like like visual confusion leading up to it that undercuts any of the actual tension like jet alone is so it, it's going nuclear it looks like it's going to it, it's basically set up that it could explode and destroy a huge part of the city of which we see nothing it's walking on what looks like an empty field for miles and miles and miles nothing that it's heading towards no one is clearly at risk uh when it stomps through the command center no one is hurt it's just it the stakes feel so low and then right before the, the shot of Shinji propelling down from the aircraft carrier, how fucking big is that aircraft carrier? Like the, the, the plane that is like dropping Shinji down must be enormous. It's ridiculous. The sense of scale in this episode compared to the other episodes of Ava is just like nonsensical, which is even heightened further by the shots of Masato in Ava Unit 1's hand where she appears to be the size of the the middle finger of the Ava. The show, this episode in particular, plays really fast and loose with like the size and scale of the conflict, ultimately to set up a, a fight scene in which the Ava just runs and then holds a dumpy, shitty-looking robot still while steam is coming out of its ears. It's a sin that the show has yet to commit, which is a bad action sequence. Every other action sequence has been good, this one has nothing going for it. It's a, it's a mess. Not only do I agree with everything that Ian just said, I have a list. I've got a fucking list of like all my fucking problems with this episode. And Ian, with your permission, I'd like to read my list. <laughs> How many items? Uh, you know, if it gets too much, I'll cut you off. But go off, King. 
All right, here we go. First of all, info dumps are weak, and minus the info dump, this episode tells us absolutely fucking nothing new about the characters. Not one thing. Second, this episode's full of techno babble, and techno babble is a screen. It's a crutch. It's a distraction. And Ava uses it too much, but this episode really uses it too much. So much of the setup in this episode does not pay off. Jet alone sucks. I think Jet alone sucks on purpose. Like, I think this is their joke. The way Ramiel was a joke about how kaiju suck. I think, like, Jet alone is like also giant robot shows that aren't us suck. And that doesn't land with me. Why wasn't this episode earlier? Why wasn't it before Ramiel? Why is this what we get after, like, this fucking amazing action sequence? It makes no fucking sense. Jet alone going berserk is way too easy. So predictable. Like, a a toddler could see it fucking coming. Also, if the whole premise of this episode is that is that Nerve needs a reason to be able to operate like beyond the law, fuck that. Nerve is scarier when they don't have the plausible deniability of other sectors' weapons being as unsafe as the fucking Avas. Like the world is scarier when Jet alone works and Nerve does whatever they want anyway. Even in a show as ruthless as Ava, which isn't even as ruthless as it's gonna get. Never once do I believe that Masato's going to die or that a nuclear bomb's going to be detonated. Not when they've gone out of their way to, like, not have nuclear bombs earlier in the fucking series. No way. The action isn't nearly as tense as it could be or as last episode. Ritsuko being, like, a weird super hacker slash mustache twirling villain sucks. Like, her being some sort of weird shadowy super agent. There's no room for that in this show. That's unrealistic. Likewise, if Jet Alone fails only because Ritsuko sabotages it, then that undercuts the entire purpose of Nerve. Also, where's Ray? We just had two episodes of where Ray's so important. Where's Ray? You don't even talk about her. She's not here. Also, the weird happy message sitcom ending sucks. I don't like it. There. Was that too long? No, that's too much. There's a lot that I can build on. There's a few things that I'd like to slightly tweak because if there's anything that's positive about this episode, it's the way that it reveals that Misato is just as in the dark about some of these things as Shinji is. The one thing that pays off in in this episode is that we learn that Shinji has been told a lie about Second Impact, that there are levels to this shit, that there are conspiracies that go beyond what we had been previously been shown in the show. And then that theme pays off by then revealing that Misato also isn't privy to the levels of conspiracies that are going on. That said, that theme doesn't have anything else to do with the episode you know you have this like the sitcom ending sure it pays off the idea that like which is you know sort of in the theme of Ava like the way that we present ourselves is different from who we are we present ourselves differently to different people like these are all things that the show does address in its own way but that theme has nothing to do with the conspiracy theme also the it's juxtaposed in a really really weird way with the like sexism that Ritsuko and Masato face mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. at the question and answer section. It's a really jarring sequence to have like one scene where we're supposed to be like with the boys perving on Masato. And then like two scenes later, we're supposed to be with Masato and Ritsuko as they get, you know, leered on by a condescending douchebag at work. I just feel like those those two things are kind of incompatible and the show doesn't really have the juice to address why those things could possibly be related so it's just this like hanging note of dissonance that again doesn't have anything to do with the other themes of the episode it's a really loose bag 
of ideas that don't connect to each other at all and aren't held together by an interesting plot or interesting action sequence. It's just a very frustrating misstep for them. And I agree, the lack of Ray is weird. I don't know where you could fit her in to this episode because it's already got so much of nothing going on. But it's unimaginative is the other thing. There's so much like pedestrian anime shit in this episode. Like the whole like Kensuke and Toji talking in sync thing is just like, this isn't the show, man. Like you, you're better than this. You're going to get better than this. Like, and I, I promise you, if, if you haven't watched this series with us before now, it, it, it gets much better than this. And I know that they needed like a reason to, to like explain, to do the world building, to be like, okay, here's the second impact. Here's the real shit about the second impact to hint at unit two and then hint at like, there's units past two. What? I think that's kind of cool, but I don't need nerve to be like even more of a shadowy evil organization. I already get that. I don't need more Misato is the parent Shinji deserves but not wants. I already get that. You know? What's with the Russian agent? What's with the United United States? What is with here's where we lose a ton of fans? The politics of Evangelion. Okay. What what are they? So I do want to talk about this at length, actually. And I think it's important first to maybe talk a bit about the next episode as well. Because I have some problems that carry over from the Jet Alone episode to the Asuka episode. And I think it's, I want to get those out of the way because there's actually more that's worth talking about uh, regarding the politics as well as Asuka in general. Take me there. Take me. Okay. Again, to the point of pedestrian anime shit holding the show back the first half of the Asuka episode suffers from some real, like, dumb writing. First off, why the fuck are the boys on this trip to a UN fleet? So what, they they pop into the Ava once and they get kicked out and reprimanded. It's in the show that they were reprimanded for, you know, escaping their bunker and, you know, seeing this Ava fight. Why are now they suddenly allowed to go on, like, top secret missions with nerve? Like, this is, it doesn't match the tone of the show at all to have these, like, two horny teenagers go ogle at girls in boats. It's so stupid. It has my single least favorite shot in the entire show. That being... It's, so it's a still shot of a bunch of like sailors and like helicopter. Oh, it's operators. so bad. I know the exact one you're talking about. It's and the entire background, including all of these characters, is just flat, immobile, and all of them just have this like shit eating grin on their face. While like Kensuke is like running around listing off all of the different like fighter planes that he's looking at and not interacting with any of the actual stuff that he's talking about. It also is scored by my least favorite music cue in the entire show, which is this like rinky dink, like country Western fiddle tune that also doesn't match like anything else that's going on in the tone of the show. Like that music, I think also was played during like the pen pen introduction. Totally appropriate for pen pen because he's like a funny character, completely inappropriate here. Funny thing, just so you're aware, that musical cue is Asuka's cue. It doesn't work here, even though it's it, introducing it the character that it's supposed to be like associated with. Also, why does a German character have a country Western tune? I mean, I know that I, I don't I don't know. I know that the, like there is like a, a popularity of country music in Germany that is like sort of similar to the like anime fandom in America, where like the Germans think like 
cowboys are kind of like weird and exotic in the way that like Americans think like samurais are cool, but it's a weird association for Ava to make itself. Then there's the another just like really shitty quote unquote meet cute between Toji and Asuka. That's just like, what what are we doing here? You know, like I can, I can accept all of the like psychosexual shit that goes on this show. Cause I think it's like interesting and weird and sometimes like symbolically cool, but literally just two characters like looking at each other's genitals and like slapping each other. I, I, I don't have time for this. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> it's, it's not good as an, ad- as rewatching this as an adult, the thing that, that has aged the least well are the boys are Kensuke and Toji. And again, some foreshadowing, you might want to ask yourself why introduce those characters at all? Well, it, it becomes a thing, but at this point in time, like the Kensuke and Toji being, we're just two crazy guys. Like it, it doesn't fucking, it doesn't fucking work. I, I think I understand maybe why you get the scene you talked about with Kensuke and, and the fighter pilots. I, I think that's supposed to be a gag. I don't think it's funny, but I think it's meant to be a gag. And it, it's worth noting that Hideki Yano is a, um, a World War II buff, uh, that he collects model ships. He, he thinks that military hardware is cool. Which maybe hints at some sort of interesting, like, crypto conservatism in his personal politics. I, I'm not, I'm not certain. We'll get there. I um, promise. But we'll get there. I think it. I think in that moment, I think that's that's him maybe trying to poke fun at himself. But maybe that's a gag that shouldn't make it off. Should be left on the cutting room floor. Yeah, it's it's a it's a lack of self editing that. I think a lot of the positives of this show come from like how much uncut Hideki Anno shit is in it. You know, like all of this, the sort of weird, totally. like fatherhood issues and this, the sort of more psychological stuff that is like very clearly, if not directly analogous to Anno's life is at least like suggestive of some thematic things that he's really interested in as a writer, his insistence on continuing to, like shove in essentially like not techno babble because it's actually all real like military equipment His like shoehorning that stuff in, you know, it's not like the one scene that we get with Kensuke and Shinji, like in the camp out a few episodes ago. Great. I love it. It builds character. It reflects in interesting ways on both of those characters interacting with each other and the world that they live in this stuff where it's just like, military weaponry porn i don't care man it's just not for me me neither i i don't think this episode was really benefits from having toji or kensuke in it at all it is interesting to note while we're talking about the weakness of these episodes that so while while evangelion was airing yoshiki satamoto the character designer was publishing a manga a comic of it and he's the writer and illustrator of the comic. And the comic began concurrent with the series. Most popular anime series are adapted from comics. Evangelion's the other way around. But they were released at the same time initially. And then he started taking more and more and more and more time with, with, with the comics. So the comics have a very different tack by the end. But it's worth noting that 
this is where the manga and the series diverge because Sadamoto omits these two episodes. Hmm. You get like a screenshot of there's like a two panel splash of Asuka killing Gagiel that's like portrayed on a screen that's like, here's how good the second children is. She like beat this fucking angel with two battleships. And like, that's the only thing from either of these two episodes that carries through into the comic version, which is a, a bit of a tighter story. Yeah, I, I think that there's enough cool shit that happens in the second half of this episode that I'm fine with it existing. Like, I like this trip because I think it does actually have some, it does write a lot of the things that the Jet Alone episode does wrong in the way that it situates Nerve's place in the hierarchy of the global government. The fact that it's establishing that there is this like financial strain that Nerve is placing on the world that the rest of the world actually just, just not fucking with Nerve. Like, the UN is aggressively demeaning to Nerve's stature politically and that's i it's important foreshadowing and it's a really interesting idea we don't need two episodes in a row of it and we Mm -hmm. don't need it cut up with teenage buffoonery in my humble opinion but the really great thing that we get of these two episodes is we get to spend a lot of time with asuka and shinji which is like one of the most fundamental parts of the show from here on out so i think we should transition into talking about Asuka herself. And, uh, you know, we don't have a lot to work with since it's only about one episode with her, but as you can tell, she brings a lot to the table pretty much immediately. So let's dive in. She puts it all out there, and that's why I love her. And I think that's why people do love her. There may be sort of a cultural difference because, like we said in the last episode, in in Japan, Rei took off as, like, the fan favorite character. But I wonder if internationally... Asuka has more popularity. I know that I I don't understand the the fetishistic way that people view Ray, but I get it with Asuka. I was worried about watching this episode because I haven't seen the series in a long time. And I remember just having this like inordinate adoration for this character. But I also understand why people don't like her. Right. She can come across as and I'm using a politically loaded term because I don't I don't like this critique of her, uh, but she comes across as shrill, maybe. Um, and and whereas like a lot of the other characters sort of skirt whole wholesale stereotypes, she does sort of fall into the horrible. Again, I don't like it. Anime stereotype of, oh, hyper aggressive, try hard girl who will pull a giant hammer out from under her skirt and bonk you on the head with it. Right. Like she's inches away from doing that in this episode. The first thing she does of consequence is slap someone for looking at her underwear. For looking at her underwear. It's not it's not cool. But that didn't happen for me. I rewatched and I was instantly I was right back in it. I, I love her. And here's why. In a way, I think Asuka of the kids is the most realistic character. Let's go back and like go through the three pilots and, and just talk about this, right? No one knows Ray. You've never met a Ray in your life. Ray is a fantasy archetype. She's not a real person. Even even real sociopaths aren't like Ray. Everyone feels like Shinji, I think. A lot, many people feel like Shinji. And I think if you've hung around, you know, enough like DIY shows, you've probably met a Shinji. But it is, because we spend so much time in his head, 
he's a bit more heightened than uh, than a human being would be. I think a lot of real people are Shinji on the inside and probably fewer real human beings are Shinji on the outside. But most people have maybe met a Shinji and even more people than that have felt like Shinji, mm -hmm. which is the most important thing, right? In contrast, everyone knows an Asuka. I know I do. And they're some of my best friends. I love them. I, 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 I love confident women. I think they're great. And I think as characters, as people, and I think her confidence isn't on, isn't unfounded. Like she's so good with unit two. She knows how to crack a joke. The language joke is funny. Mm -hmm. It's, it's one of the better jokes in the series. I think she, she's great because not only is she incredibly confident, but even in this small episode, we get a, a hint of that confidence is paired with a certain degree of insecurity like the fact that she immediately bristles when Kaji suggests that Shinji is like a really good Ava pilot clearly pisses her off. It clearly sets up her being like, no, 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 no. I have to prove that I'm better at this than Shinji. And that is such a great like contrast between the way that like Shinji and Rei look at piloting the Ava. It's like, I was thinking about this, like Shinji treats piloting an Ava like it's making art. Like it's this punishing soul-crushing responsibility that he has to do to impress his dad you know he he treats piloting the eva like it's like writing a like an opera or something you know and ray treats it like she's just punching the clock it's just a job it's like yep i pilot the eva because it's the only thing i do I, I don't have any all like alternatives in my life i just i wake up every morning i go i pilot the eva i go to bed oscar treats it like it's a fucking sport Asuka, if she was not an Ava pilot, would be, like, just throwing bows on the court. Like, she would be, she has, like, the, the totally. Kobe Bryant, like, Mamba mentality. She is a pure-blooded fucking killer. She reminds me a lot of, like, the teenage girl soccer players that I've known. Just this, like, incredibly, right. like, aggressive attitude about it. It's so great. Like, that crucial difference just adds this whole other level to the energy of the show like from here on out this show fucking flies like even the episodes that don't necessarily hit the peaks that we've seen just move at a different pace because oscar is here she energizes everyone and everything around her and i think that's that's what makes her cool but at the same time you do get these quiet poignant moments i'm thinking of her putting on the entry plug suit and needing to give herself like a little pep talk mm -hmm. I think that moment justifies the entire rest of the episode. If there's an issue I have with Asuka, this is my only issue with Asuka. Her, her relationship with Kaji. Likewise, likewise realistic, because I, I think we've all known maybe teenagers who may not know how to differentiate professional admiration and desire for affirmation from their caregivers, from possibly romantic desire you know like it's 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 obvious that like she's got like a thing for kaji and that's problematic it, it bugs me sometimes like rewatching the episode that bugged me having seen the rest of the show recently i i think that is something that the 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 show is well aware of in a similar way it's a really good parallel to the uh shinji masato relationship and totally. you can already see that that's also being cross-matched here, you know, because 
you know, Shinji and Asuka, in order to defeat the angel, have to work together in this like really overtly sexualized shot where they're like hunched over each other and like grunting as they're like trying to pry the jaws of this angel open. And we also get a hint of a backstory, you know, Kaji, what a fucking wild boy. Like the fact that he's sitting at a, a lunch table with a bunch of teenagers and immediately starts talking about Masato, like talking in her sleep. <laughs> it's just like, Oh yeah. my God, what is your problem, dude? Like, and so he's a walking HR violation <laughs> and like, and there's going to be even more of it. Like, if Nerve has an HR department, he's got a whole cabinet. And it. I think that makes sense for him as a character because why doesn't the wild boy get canned? Because this is the wild boy that's willing to fucking trek across the fucking ocean with a briefcase containing a demigod. It also, for it's you. proximity to power. He's clearly working right. really, really close with Gendo on something. They have like, they're in cahoots in a similar way that, you know, it's established in the Jet Alone episode that Ritsko and Gendo are in cahoots in some way. Uh, this is, a, I think, a good time to transition into the other big theme from these two episodes. Because I, I think that as much as these two episodes are about introducing Asuka, the one thing that both of them have in common is the introduction of Kaji. Because I think it's Kaji on the line in the Jet Alone episode at the very beginning. I think it is. I think it is too. I didn't. I, I didn't have that thought until I watched the second episode. I was like, "Oh, it's probably him calling." I mean, and and also like, it's weird that they introduce these two characters later in the series, right? Because they're in the title credits. Kaji and Asuka are like clearly they're a part of the plan from go. If we kind of like take that tact of. You know, the way that we've been approaching the show so far is treating these two, like each episode pair as having some sort of connective arc. Like there's a reason that we're doing this podcast this way. So what are, why are these two episodes paired together? And I think the thing that these two episodes are getting at is a deep seated distrust of authority, of systems of bureaucracy and of power. And that can be read in two different ways. And the show is really unclear about this as we've been hinting at. There is absolutely a way of looking at these two episodes from a kind of Randian right-wing tact. So, for example, in the Jet Alone episode, we get the sequence after Jet Alone has gone nuts. And Masato is like, we have to act right now. Let's go. Let's stop this thing. What's the password? Let's shut it down. And instead, the, you know, like limp-dicked private contractor has to call up his bosses further and further up the chain. And it's revealed that they're playing golf. They're in some other country. It's just this mess of red tape. And Masato's like, no, this is bullshit. Like I'm in charge now. I'm taking this thing down. And cause I'm the person capable of doing it. Like inaction is inexcusable. Right. Like it's, it reminds me a lot of the, like the whole thing with the, like ghostbusters, you know, how like ghostbusters is like, Oh, you know, the private sector, they, they expect results. And like Masato in that episode really does come across kind of as a like conservative action hero, you know, like she's going to, is she Venkman? <laughs> is, is Masato secretly 
fucking Bill Murray, you could totally look at it that way. Like, I'm not a big enough Ghostbusters fan to really say. It's not my uh, not my area of nostalgia. But the thing that makes it complicated, though, is that it's a level of self-sacrifice. She's saying she's willing to die to take down Jet alone. She's saying, I'm going to put on this radiation suit. I'm going to go in and stop it. Fuck the higher-ups. You know, fuck the red tape. Let's just take care of this right now. I just realized this is probably the episode where we've cursed the most out of any of them, um, which says something. It's just because Jet alone makes me so fucking yeah. angry. These are very like, <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's a lot of like uncomfortable feelings with these episodes. But that same impulse to be like, and she she acts the same way when she lands on the, uh, the UN fleet, right? She's saying like, fuck your chain of command when the angels show up, I'm the good guy with the gun that's going to be able to stop the angels. Like, the UN is not going to be able to take care of this. Right. So you could also see that same sort of mentality about how she takes care of Ramiel in the previous episodes. And, you know, the the sort of general attitude that the show has is, like, very anti-bureaucratic and very uh, worried about conspiratorial behavior from those in power, you know? Like Kaji and Gendo are working together to do something. They're acting beyond the legal means. They are not to be trusted in some respect or another. And that there's a bad faith. Yeah, there's there's a bad faith read of of Gendo in these episodes where he's Q in QAnon secretly like hunting down like the people who like will not help humanity survive the angels in the global government like that's a bad faith reading yeah but i would say i would say that there's another way of looking at it which is that sort of like if misato is like the clint eastwood you know Mm -hmm. the renegade sergeant like who's gonna like neutralize the threat Mm -hmm. then nerve and gendo are like the evil higher ups that are secretly running shit. You could have that same sort of conspiratorial attitude towards nerve itself, but I don't quite necessarily know if that lines up with the like American conception of left and right political, the left and right political spectrum in America. I don't really think those things really work. So while I found myself being like, well, let me let me complicate this for you. There's I, I think I think your instinct to shy away from the good faith reading of the series is politics is correct. And and here's why there's a I have a few chains of this. And by the way, we'll link to these in the show notes. Right. So if you look on on Wisecrack right now, they've got a really great video essay on the tradition of the imperial Japanese sort of hyper conservative, hyper nationalist tradition existing in shonen anime mm-hmm. right and evangelion is not a sh- quote quite exactly a shonen anime but it shares some of the dna and there's there is a tradition in the pop culture of of japan that is even post world war ii hyper nationalistic there is no country more anti-communist than japan period if you look if you look at their national history and i think you're right to read some stereotypical right wing ideas in in the plot i think you're right 
But beyond the general tradition of nationalist politics existing in anime, and this goes back to stuff that that obviously is an, an influence on uh, the giant robot idiom and Evangelion in particular. I'm thinking about if you've ever like heard about space battleship Yamato. I can't go into that, but it's a it's a very interesting show, and the history of it's as interesting as the plot of the show itself. There's whole references to battleship Yamato in the Asuka episode itself. But the, the reason to suspect Anno in particular beyond that is, uh, and here's the alert, here's where Joseph brings up Godzilla movie. You ready? Mm-hmm. So uh, as we mentioned in the last episode, Hideki Anno directed Shin Godzilla, the, the last Japanese Godzilla movie, which won Best Picture at the Japan Film Awards, their equivalent of the Oscars. Uh, I believe the year that Shinzo Abe was elected prime minister. Um, and, and this is probably opaque to, to us in America because he's more polite. But Shinzo Abe is absolutely in the tradition of of Donald Trump and Jair Bolsonaro as these new wave of right wing crypto fascist, quote unquote, Democratic leaders. Shinzo Abe loved Shin Godzilla. And Shin Godzilla it has conservative politics. I can there's articles dissecting it. I can link to them. It's a black comedy about how hierarchies inside democracy don't work. That's that's what the fucking movie's about. Because at the beginning, Godzilla is beatable and government in action waits. And then it metamorphoses into Shin Godzilla. That's like an angel from Evangelion and fucking mm-hmm. indestructible. And, and it takes a group of Misados who are like bureaucratic scientists that have that Clint Eastwood mentality that work together in a weird poly collective that figure out the hack to hack Godzilla's genetics and beat him. Like it it's, and this is a story that, that Anno developed. You're, you're right. He has conservative anti-democratic sympathies in his art. What I will say is that by comparison to an anime that I legit had to stop watching because of how conservative it is, uh, Attack on Titan, this show... Well, <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to let we that could, one slide. There's, okay. Well, Attack... Well, Attack on Titan... It, it Attack on Titan goes out of its way now to complicate okay, good. things like that. But, it, but, it, but, it, but Attack on Titan does... Like, the argument that Attack on Titan has fascist sympathies... I I can't disagree with it, uh, but I, I don't, it's not as bad as like Code Geass. Uh-huh. Like the whole premise of Code Geass is what if dictator but superpower is good? Yeah, that's not, that doesn't sound fun. They showed that on Adult Swim. <laughs> I I will. What I'm attempting to get at, and maybe I shouldn't have spoke out of turn about Attack on Titan because I haven't seen all of it, but. The first season is like straight up fascist shit. I'm sorry. I, I think Attack on Titan's just still up in the air. I think like I think the the plot is still not settled. It's like that show is basically like what if Starship Troopers but serious, you know? Like right. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, not for me. This show at least it's grounded in a in the subjective experience of the Ava pilots. And that allows it to exist in a world where, like, yes, Masato is probably a conservative character, but I don't necessarily know if the show itself, Ava, I mean, is the whole tilt in a conservative TV show. 
I think it's more complicated than that. And I think it is ultimately more focused on the individual experiences and like psych psychology of its characters in a way that could be read absent of the uh, like American projection of left-wing, right-wing centrist politics. Uh, I think it's actually makes Masato a more interesting character or like helps fill out our understanding of Masato if we understand her to be this sort of like gung-ho Clint Eastwood conservative type. It lines up, she's really into cars and has this sort of red-blooded, you know, go get him, probably listens to Five Finger Death Punch kind of attitude. It's funny that you say that because I, I did, when you were talking about, when we were talking about Asuka's theme, I was thinking... You know, you make the American movie version of this, and when Asuka powers up Ava Unit 2, you hear, uh, My name is Kid <laughs> Rock! <laughs> yeah, like, I, there's there's stuff, of there's, it's in there, but I, I think, to the show's credit, the politics are just more complicated than that, you know? Like, you could also read that sequence in the Jet Alone episode of, like, the people on the ground all want to take action. And it's instead the fact that they're not in control because they have bosses that causes them to not be able to take action. So you could also read that from a leftist perspective. You could say like, oh, all of these people who are actually doing the work, who are actually on the front lines should have the decision-making power to respond to threats as they happen, you know, instead of being controlled by, you know, the golf playing elites who have no concern for the regular people. So that could really be read in either direction. And I, I think you could also maybe state that like a shadowy cabal like nerve acting outside of the goodwill of the government, it being unaccountable to the people in any way, you could also see like there would absolutely be a leftist critique of the existence of nerve. The fact that it's like, operating with like zero impunity in the same way that like Exxon or Amazon or, you know, should I not have, should I not have right. said Amazon? I know you're in Seattle. I, I don't want to put you at risk. You can like, you can say, I bet Hideki Anno thinks Jeff Bezos is kind of neat. Uh, more importantly, I, I bet Jeff Bezos thinks that he should be able to pilot an Evangelion. <laughs> I think that there's a way of looking at the show, like clearly nerve are not the heroes, even though the heroes work for nerve that, you can read this from a populist angle right. in either direction. Right. And I, I think that's to the show's credit. And I, I do, I'm glad that we spent this time like looking this straight in the face because it was something that like really shocked me upon rewatching the show. But I, I think the show doesn't really make a claim either way. And that it's to the benefit of the show that it doesn't go full hog conservative when it really, really could. Yeah. I mean, my take is I think the attitude of the series is probably more like in, in a in a in, from a from an angle once removed. I think sort of like the premise of the story is how can I really comment on the way that we live in a society when just trying to untangle intimate feelings for one or two other human beings is so fraught that it's apocalyptic. Right. Yes. Right. Like it, it, it takes, it takes this sort of in, inner and tight interpersonal drama and expands it as if through like a telescope in this way where you can read it as biblical drama. And 
when you're looking at the world that way and trying to make some sort of serious understanding of like, is it what is the nature of like friendship and and are its lines with romance mixed and and when does adulthood begin and childhood end and is that fair and is that right like in when you're interrogating that it's really hard to take that and then take okay now how does this translate to democratic politics like it, it's it's just doesn't do that I think the the lens of understanding that Evangelion excels at is not political and to its credit not i may still be wrong because you're further along in the rewatch than i am but i think after these episodes any sort of political commentary gets thrown out the window pretty quick in favor of like now we've got all the principal players now i've got asuka now we've got kaji now we've got shinji let's let's talk about the way that pain transmits through generations as opposed to does a good guy with a gun stop mass shooting? Evangelion can't grapple with that. And and maybe that's like a weakness of it. But I think, but but it, it, it grapples with psychology so well. I You know, we're, I've hinted at this before in previous episodes. There are going to be more uh, politically themed episodes, mostly involving Kaji. But the show, I, I think for reasons out of the show's control, pivoted away from addressing a lot of the political stuff head on. And instead, what's coming up in the next two episodes is a direct interrogation of one of those uh, personal relationships. The next two episodes feature heavy focus on Shinji and Asuka. I'm really excited to talk about them. They're maybe not the biggest fireworks uh, and like high quality as the uh, the episodes we talked about previously in the last in the last batch. But they're much better than these two that we talked about in this podcast. Before before you sign off on, on this, I did just want to point out one thing. I think the gag eel fight is great. Yeah. I, like, I, I think it, in terms of like it being like a triumph of animation, I think in you said the jet alone thing doesn't work. But I think once you get the the ponderous beginning of the Oscar episode out of the way, her like making Shinji wear the the feminine plug suit mm. is is interesting for him as a character and a and a motif that will continue. I think them their like cute interaction like in the plug suit works, and I think that the on a character level while they're fighting this otherwise sort of unremarkable angel in the ruins of the old city underwater, I think it's great. I, I I think it's again, this is as good as like animated action shows get when it gets out of its own way. Yeah. No, the cinematography is great. Like the the makeshift cape that Unit Two has, the leaping mm-hmm. from uh, aircraft carrier to aircraft carrier. The design of the angel is maybe a bit bland, but it's awesome to see how huge it is. The and it mm-hmm. immediately sets up this great like scale of the combat you're right like them going through the old city underwater is just a stunning surreal beautiful image to just have as the setting it's the exact opposite of what happened in the jet alone episode where there's literally no background during the fight scene you instead get this like really gorgeous unique setting for a really interesting battle sequence yeah no i i don't mean to like disparage uh, oscar arrives in its entirety. I just think that it is a note, a noticeable step down from the 
like first third of episodes that we've already watched, but it absolutely has a lot going for it. I don't I don't want to dismiss it outright. That's all I ask. All I ask is that and that everyone understand Oscar's the best. Oscar's queen. We'll move over Beyonce, in my opinion. <laughs> we'll talk more about Asuka in the episodes coming up. And in the meantime, I'll start hatching some more plans to write in some more fan service for the next draft. So until then, catch you later. Thank you for listening. If you liked the episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. If you want to share your thoughts on the show or about anything really, email us at humaninstrumentalitypodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter at another AvaPod and on Instagram at humaninstrumentalitypod. Extra special thanks to Kira Anderson for the graphics and web design. See you next week. <laughs> <laughs>